Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and more certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Today we finish our study in the New Testament book, Titus. For these 11 weeks, we have learned a great deal about the way the Apostle Paul was teaching his young pastor friend, Titus. Titus was the pastor of a church on the Isle of Crete. Those teachings are in the Bible to show us in the 21st century the importance of following the leading of the Lord through Paul. Class teacher Doug Brady will be opening a new major study of the Old Testament book of Daniel next week. You can count on a verse-by-verse, word-by-word study of this wonderful book. Although Doug has taught this book in the past, he is doing it again, adding much material which he has discovered for our Christian growth. Well, Doug is at the podium, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Now today in Titus, we're finishing this book. I want you to remember that uh, this was one of the last books that Paul wrote. The only one he wrote after this one was Second Timothy. And Paul is going to demonstrate some very serious principles in this book that we need to be familiar with. I am going to compare them to the principles in another man's life today, and we're going to see that comparison and how important it really is. Now, all through this book, there's been an undercurrent of this concept of spiritual leadership. And I really haven't touched it that much, but we're going to drill down into that undercurrent and let it flow over us today so that we can come to understand. Now, as we reach the end of this book, we find that just like there was an introductory paragraph at the start of this letter, there's also a paragraph that concludes Paul's thoughts and his statements that he's going to make Timothy, and we're going to focus on that conclusory paragraph Today, the final thoughts that Paul is going to end his letter to Titus with. So before we read that paragraph, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Father, I just thank you that you've provided us a church that allows us to study what God wants us to study. It doesn't try and force us to do something we don't want to do. I thank you that we're able to be open And just to use as our basis for our study, your book, the Bible. Help me to be faithful in studying this next book as we come up. To be able to share with my friends here all the wonderful and fruitful things that you have in that book. And how you can teach us how to live in a pagan world and yet live exemplary. Father, I pray that as we work through this today, that your Holy Spirit will be strong in this room. I know that's the only way he really appears is strong, but I pray that we won't be doing anything to block him, and that we'll allow him to empower us and teach us today, have him be the teacher and not me, and may your book speak to our hearts with things that we can take and remember and make a part of our lives and our practice. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, we'll start in verse 12 of chapter 3 of Titus. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Paulus on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All of you or all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in faith and grace be with you all. 
most people would say, okay, he's just making a few final comments, and we need to move on to the next thing we're going to be studying. This is really just a little fluff. I would beg to differ with that concept. And in fact, let's look at a few key words and phrases just so that we can understand what's going on in this final paragraph. The first one I want you to look at is make every effort. This is more of an idiom in Greek. Uh, Maybe the most equal idiom in English is do the best you can to. Do the best you can to whatever it happens to be. And that's what Paul is saying. I want you to try and meet me in Nicopolis and spend the winter with me. Then you look at the next phrase. It says, I have decided. For I have decided. The concept here, he didn't just make a decision. It's, it's a little stronger than that if you look at this word and phrase. It's I'm determined to or I have resolved to. It's, it indicates that there's going to be an effort by Paul to do this, but he's going to accomplish it anyway. And finally, there's an adjective here I want you to see. It's diligently. Diligently. Uh, it can mean have two concepts in its meaning. It can mean haste. Or, or be quick about, or it can mean to do things diligently, meaning you're getting on it and you're getting it done. There's no procrastinating. There's no laziness. You recognize the important. Now, this same word used in a verb form is what it appears in that uh, passage we all know so well in Second Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman does not need to be ashamed accurately dividing the word of truth. That same concept here of diligently. I think here, as in 2 Timothy 2.15, we understand this word is more about the diligence than the haste. So, but in the same time, it's also quick to do something if you're diligent. Now, Don, I have to tell you, one of the most important words in the Bible is found in this passage. It's a word that is rarely used because it's so important. Well, it's not used in... Oh, exactly the opposite of that. It is exactly used that way. And it's shown to be very... And the Greek word is nikomos. Nikomos. It's a word that you should learn, Don. Nikomos. It's... it's Maybe say better, namikos. And it's right there after zenos. The lawyer. That's what that word, nikomos, nimkomos, nikomos means. The lawyer. Now, there are some disputes about what this means. Of course, when you have lawyers, there's always disputes. And we're familiar with that. But it demonstrates the wisdom of Paul here in that this is somebody who's part of his retinue. He has a lawyer with him. He saw the need for a lawyer. Now, What kind of lawyer is this? There are some that say this is a Roman litigator, and others say, no, this is an expert in Mosaic law and in Jewish law. Now, which is it? I think it's real clear when you really consider the facts. At this point in time, at the time this was right, who is maybe the one most familiar in the world with Jewish Mosaic law And what goes on in uh, Jewish courts and Jewish tradition? Paul. He doesn't need a Jewish lawyer. But what he does need is a Roman litigator. Because there are a great number of rights encapsulated in being a Roman citizen. And did Paul use that to his advantage at times? Yeah, he did. But having a Roman litigator to help him... So that's who this guy Zenos is. So I want us now to first to take a look at the location and timing. Where is it that Paul wants Titus to go? Nicopolis. He wants him to leave Crete and go to Nicopolis. Where is Nicopolis? Well, it's pretty close. But did you know that in that understanding... There's some scholars say you missed eight out of nine because they say there's nine Nicopolises. Other people say, no, no, there's really only three main Nicopolises. And you see, Nicopolis means city of victory. So 
a military leader would win a great victory, or at least in his mind it was a great victory, he'd establish a town called Nicopolis, the city of victory. And he would give land grants to his officers, and the enlisted men who fought valiantly, they would get a land grant. And so they would establish this. But in this time, there was probably three that we ought to consider. The first one is found in, a, in the Roman province of Cilicia. Now, show them where Cilicia is, Jerry. It's right there. You can see it right there. That's, that's in the lower part of modern Turkey, or what was called Asia Minor. It's near to Tarsus, where Paul grew up. But that's not where the Nicopolis was that most scholars believe that Paul is talking about. There's a second place over on the western and northeastern side of Greece called Thrace. Show them that one, Jerry. All right. It's right there. And there's a Nicopolis up there in, in Thrace. But they don't think that was it. Now, the next uh, is, province is, is this one here uh, of Epirus. And it's, now you see, on the west side of Greece. And if you look right down here in this area here, that was where the Nicopolis, city of Nicopolis was located in Epirus. Show them where that is, Jerry. Right there, it has this bay that comes in here rather extensively. And most scholars believe that's where Paul wanted to spend his winter, and that's where he wanted Titus to come and spend time with him. Now... Why would Paul want Titus to come spend time with him? Because he is building someone very important to his ministry. What is it? A leader. And he's building this leader, and he wants to be able to work. But did he not have a job to oversee the churches in Crete? So what is Paul going to do? He's going to send a replacement. And in fact, if you notice in your notes, the next next thing we're going to look at is the replacements. By the way, Nicopolis there in Epirus was built by Octavian Augustus Caesar uh, in celebration of his victory over Mark Antony and Cleopatra, probably about 31 BC. And so uh, that's how that came into being. So Paul indicates that one of two men will be replacing him as the leader of the churches in Crete. It's either Artemis or Tychicus. Now, you hear those names, Artemis and Tychicus. Did you have something you wanted? Uh, yeah, the, um, the part of it that said uh, they decided to spend the winter there, it says diligently help uh, Zenos and Apollos on their way. Like in the, the next <coughs> one, it says our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So apparently he's wanting to focus on some works training or deeds training as well. He does, and he wants... Titus to share that message as he gets. You know, all of these guys, how long would it take to go from Crete uh, to Nicopolis? Well, you don't do it in two hours. And as you go along, you're able to meet in churches and teach people things. Get to that even more in a second. But I want to know, how many of you ever heard of Artemis? And I don't mean the partner of Jim West. I mean Artemis. Okay. Well, do you know where else he's mentioned in the Bible? Artemis is? No, that, that's a goddess. That's a little different. I'm talking about this guy here, Artemis. Well, I was talking about a person, not a, a false god. But anyway, I, I, when I am dealing with the Malachites, I do need to clarify more. And I'm, I'm going to work on that. Uh, I, but actually, we know very little about this guy. He's not really mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. Now, we do know this was a man that Paul had been discipling and grooming for leadership responsibilities, and that Paul was willing to place Artemis over the churches of Crete as he, earlier, as he had earlier Titus. So obviously, he, he believed in him and believed him to be sufficiently qualified to do this, but that's all we know about him. Now, how many of you have ever heard of Tychicus before? And I don't mean a god, I mean a person. One. Well, actually... Tychicus is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament, a number of times. He accompanied Paul uh, on, on a missionary journey. We'll look at it in a second. But it was a missionary, one of his, uh, I think it was his second missionary journey where he, he left Greece and headed back to, uh, to Asia Minor, to Ephesus. 
And uh, he was uh, from Corinth to Asia Minor, and, and that's spoken of in Acts 20, verse 4. But he was the one that Paul selected to deliver his epistle to the church of Colossians, uh, over to Colossae. When Paul wrote this book, I want you to think about that. We don't, let, let's make sure we understand something. This is very, this is going to be a technical question. So I'm already preparing you. Is the book that's in my hand inspired? The answer is no. The autographed copies of the books that were in this book are inspired. I mean, first of all, this book is in English. The the books of the Bible weren't written in English. They had to be translated into English. Now, what do I mean by autographed copies? When Paul sends the letter... I'll come back to you. When Paul sends the letter to Colossians, he signs it, and it goes. That is inspired. That is the absolute word of God. It is completely and totally reliable. Now, do what we have now as far as the Greek form of Colossians, is it almost exactly the same as the autographed copy? I believe that it is. Is the English translation of Colossians inspired. No, it's not. It's it's just done by humans. And is it, though, as close as we can get? Well, it depends on what translation you're reading. If you're reading the message, not so much. If you're reading the NIV, I mean the nearly inspired version, not so much. But, and I'm, if you're carrying one of those Bibles, I'm sorry, and I don't mean to make fun of you, but we need to understand that what's inspired is the autographed copies. Now, you wanted to comment on that. All right, good. So, now, if I had that autographed copy today of the letter to Colossians, would that not be unbelievably special? I mean, it would be invaluable. One of the things we'd be able to do is look at it compare it to the copies that we have and we'll see there's hardly any change at all. In fact, it might be a, an exact duplicate and how great that would be to show how the scriptures have been preserved. But can you imagine if you're Tychicus and Paul gives you that letter to take with you to deliver it to the church in Colossians? What kind of a job is that? You know, Could he go over to FedEx and say, I'd like you to make four copies of this, also put it on a flash drive, and also send it to me an email? No, he can't do that. He loses that letter. It's gone. Until he gets there and they start making copies of it. That's one of the first things to do. They get the letter, they'd read it to the church, and then they'd give it to people to start making copies so they could disseminate it out. He was given that responsibility. And in fact, not only once, but most scholars believe that he delivered was the courier of Paul's letter to Ephesus, Ephesians. Can you imagine what it would be if we didn't have Ephesians or Colossians? He's responsible for that. Obviously, Tychicus has a great deal of reliability as far as, as, as Paul is concerned. In Colossians, Tychicus is referred to as our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord. In the book of Ephesians, he's also spoken of as the beloved brother and faithful minister to the Lord. When Paul wanted to take Timothy, Paul had taken Timothy and put him in charge as the pastor of the church at Ephesus, a very, very important church. One of the seven churches that are spoken of in the book of the Revelation. He wanted to move Timothy. Who did he put in place of Timothy in the church in Ephesus? Tychicus. And now he's considering moving him to the Isle of Crete, one of those two men. Now, those are the replacements. Let's look at what I call the honorable mention, contrary to Amalekite thinking. The first one is this guy, Zenos, who uh, he's not spoken of anywhere else in the New Testament. But in this context, it appears that Paul believes Zenos to be a godly believer in whom he had great confidence and whom loved Paul. And that was the case. So he said, anything you can do to help Zenos as he passes through Crete, I want you to do. Who knows, he may have been going to Rome to represent Paul there. The second man is much better known here also, and that's a guy named Apollos. He was a well-known apologist and teacher. He was a Jewish scholar who came from 
Alexandria, Egypt. Now, there are some people in our class who think nothing good comes from Alexandria, Egypt. Paul's did. Some people think he wrote Hebrews. I'm not really sure uh, who wrote Hebrews. Uh, I'm not sure we can be sure. Uh, I can remember one time they did a, a computer study and they thought that that the language and the syntax and everything used in Hebrews most likely uh, could have been reproduced something that Luke would have written. But then again, they had nothing to compare that Apollos had used. So I don't know. But Apollos is spoken of in the scriptures as being mighty in the scriptures, having been instructed in the way of the Lord and as a ferv- as fervent in the spirit. If you look in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 27, you know, does anything else good besides Apollos come from Alexandria? Well, how about the Septuagint? Who used the Septuagint as their Bible? Jesus did, didn't he? You mean Jesus is relying on something that came from Alexandria, Egypt? Yes, it was just until those other guys got there to Alexandria when things started to go south. But we don't need to get into that. And our friend from Hippo. Now, Paul believed these two men were going to be passing through. And these were also men that Paul was discipling and grooming to be leaders. He wanted these men to be trained. He wanted them placed in ministry positions so that they could get experience and be encouraged and supported. Then he gives this final admonition. Mark had mentioned to us a final admonition. Let's look at that. Do we have that passage again? No, there's the map. And show them where this uh, trip was that uh, Tychicus took part of right there from Corinth going over to Ephesus. Uh, I don't know who misplaced that slide in the PowerPoint. I'm going to have to have a talk with them. They're going to have to, you know, be a little more uh, diligent, shall we say, word we've been using today. Now, I want you to notice something here in this passage that I, I think is really important for us to understand and to see in looking at Titus and what Paul is trying to say right here at the end of this book. He says, our people must learn to engage in good deeds. Now, does anybody have a New American Standard translation in which there are footnotes and there's a footnote on deeds, good deeds? Yes, Dalton, what, what, what could it mean instead of good deeds? What could else could it be? Does it have a little one there by deeds in your Bible, verse 14? Occupations. In fact, that is something I think is important for us to see. Occupations. Yeah, I think Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Is that what you're referring to? No, but tell me what Galatians 6, 9, and 10 says. And let us not lose heart in doing good or in due time. Right. The point is that... This word speaks of something that's not done once, a random act of kindness. This, this word speaks of something that's planned to help people. And this is what Paul is saying. Why is he saying this? Look again at the concept. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. Pressing needs. Now... I'm glad she's not in a way that she's not here today. But we had a woman a while back who had some serious pressing needs. If she could just get over the hump, she would be okay. But she couldn't seem to do that. And some people in our class, especially my favorite Amalekite, really participated in helping her. And now she's doing really well. And things are going well. And, and it's just that somebody was willing to help when help was really needed. And a number of us in the class helped. And I think it's a perfect example of what Paul is saying here. There were pressing needs in that situation. And we recognize those. And Paul says, I want you to be watching for these. I want you to see when there are pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Now, that's the important thing I want you to see here. What is the antecedent of the pronoun they so that they will not be unfruitful? Us? I don't think it's us. What would you think it was? 
<laughs> well, I'm going to let Gary see if he knows. Gary, hey, Gary, you know the answer to this? The antecedent of that pronoun they there in verse uh, 14, so that they will not be unfruitful. Who is the they that Paul doesn't want to be unfruitful? The church I think it's the people with pressing needs. He's saying, if you help them, then they can be fruitful too. You can make a person who is unfruitful because of these pressing needs become fruitful. You think about it, many people, most people, I think, if they were in a dire situation and they get help and they get back on their feet and they're able to, what's going to happen when they run into somebody in the same condition? They're going to try and help them. Yes, ma'am. The person you spoke about just a minute ago, I want to relate to you, Doug, the point that that person has helped several people just as of late and tells me, Rena, what a joy it is to help people instead of being helped. Isn't that just the perfect example of what Paul is saying here? We can make someone else fruitful by helping them when they have a need. Now, if we have trouble seeing people with needs, I think all you have to do is ask the Lord, Lord, show me someone with need. I think he's going to say, no, you have to figure that out on yourself, on your own. Yes, Mark. He's popping into my mind about helping people like this is that servanthood. That's part of a Christ-like behavior. Yes, you're exactly right, Mark. So I want us to move on now, and we want to drill down into this undercurrent I talked about having to do with spiritual leadership. What has Paul been doing through this book? He's been teaching about spiritual leadership. It's all about that. This whole letter to Titus was about, here's what I want you to do, Titus. If you look at First and Second Timothy, it's the same concept. This is what I want you to do. So as we consider Paul's statements in these last sentences of his letter, we should come to recognize that Paul understands a very, very important principle, the principle of spiritual leadership reproduction. We should be producing leaders who can take over after us. Instead of leaving our family, our community, our church leaderless. This principle is very important. Now, I believe it's demonstrated here, but there's another place in the Bible where I think it's demonstrated even more, I want to say demonstratively, and that's two words being used as the same word. I don't want to say that, but where it's easy to see. And that's in, in Numbers, where we're going to see the leadership role of Moses and Joshua. Now, I'm convinced that Moses is the greatest pure human leader that our world has ever seen. If you want to study leadership, study his life and the one that he produced, Joshua. And you'll find out about leadership and leadership principles. And, and this is something that in our church we, we really need. Now, Paul, being an expert in the Old Testament, he would know about the principles that were best taught and demonstrated in the lives of Moses and Joshua. Of all the wonderful ways in which Moses expresses leadership skills, in my mind, the most strategic had to be the training of Joshua. If you will remember, Joshua became the one who completed the goal that Moses was given of leading the people into the promised land and claiming their heritage. So let's consider for just a moment this process, Moses' developmental process. Number one, Moses empowered Joshua and gave him authority. He was selected out, and so he empowers him and gives him some authority. In our study of Titus, did Paul do that? Yes, he empowered Titus and gave him authority, and the book with the letter was there to state his authority. So let's look at the first place where I'm going to show you I think this occurs in Numbers 27, starting in verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him, and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before the congregation, and commission him in their sight. 
you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Do you notice what's going on there? First of all, now, God's saying take Joshua, but in Numbers, that's way after all the time that Moses and Joshua have been spending together. He says, take him, and what is the key here to Joshua, it appears, from what God's perspective, the Spirit is in him. Now, do all believers today have the Spirit in them? Did all believers in the Old Testament have the Spirit in them? No. Only ones that God gave to. And what is going to be the clearest test of whether God's going to give you his spirit? How clean your vessel is. So, lay your hand on him. Put him in front of the congregation so that everybody can see. Make it public what you're doing. And give him some of your authority. So he empowered him. And he gave him of his authority, of, of Moses' authority. He publicly commissioned Joshua. Joshua received, as a result, positive recognition from both Moses and Eliezer, the high priest. He received the approval of his leader and his leader's acceptance. You look back in Titus, Paul did the same thing. Moses also publicly expressed his faith in Joshua. I believe in this man. You know, after Moses died, was there ever any question whether Joshua was the next man up? No. None whatsoever. The people recognize it. So that's the first thing that I think we have to see. Now the second thing. Moses gave Joshua experience and opportunities to apply what Moses had been teaching him. Look at Numbers 27, 21. Moreover, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord at his command. Now wait, who's his command? Joshua's. At his command, they shall go out, and at his command, they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. And Moses did just as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and sent him before Eliezer the priest and all uh, of the congregation. You see, Joshua's apprenticeship went way beyond, say, cerebral or passive way of looking at it. It's not just, well, we'll sit down this morning and have coffee together and talk. No, it was much, much more than that. Moses shared his life and his responsibilities with Joshua. He provided a hands-on opportunity for him to experience what was going on. Let me give you an example, or several examples. Moses had set up outside the camp a prayer tent. And he would go there, and he would pray with the Lord. And he said he would talk to the Lord as a man talks to a friend face to face. In other words, who's meeting him in that tent? God would. Now, that would obviously be something that's very intimate. and something you wouldn't have anybody else with you when you did that. Except that's not the case. Because you know who Joshua would, I mean, you know who Moses would have with him? Joshua. Joshua. But he was outside of the tent listening in. I don't think so. I think he was in the tent. We'll have to look at that. Because it says after Moses left, Joshua remained in the tent. Look that up and see. Yeah, it kind of would, wouldn't it? Because, and what was Joshua doing when he stayed in the tent? He was in his time to pray. How did he learn to pray? He learned, can you imagine learning to pray from Moses? That would be, Moses also took Joshua and he said, I want you to be a spy. And I want you to, to reconnoiter the promised land. And he went out and he did that. Now, when he came back, only two, only two said, we need to go into the land. The rest of them said, no, we're too scared. We can't go in there. Did in that event in, in Numbers 13 and 14, did Moses then stand up and said, you should listen to Joshua and their report and Caleb and start speaking to the people. Did Moses do that? No. no. Who did he let speak? Joshua. They stood up. They spoke to the people. Moses didn't. Moses said, okay, now I'm going to go talk to God. Don't kill these people, please. But he did that. And address the entire congregation at this important time of decision. Now, was he successful in swaying the people to do the right thing? 
No, but does that make any difference? It's still this hands-on experience of having to address the entire congregation in the midst of a dire circumstance. Also, what did it do? When the time came, they can always look back and say, you know, if we just listened to Joshua, we'd be in so much better shape right now. Our parents would still be with her, and they'd have gotten to go to the promised land. Instead, my parents had to die in the sand, in the wilderness, in the desert. Another thing, he acted as the military leader against some rather fearsome foes. As they were coming out of Egypt, Moses said, Joshua, you get together a fighting force. And I hate to say this, but the bad guys were the Amalekites. And they came out, and they were going to rob the, Israel, the Israelites, take all of their wealth. And that was the time when Moses went up on the hill, and he was raising his hands and praying. Joshua was the one leading the fight in the uh, valley. And I want you to think about this just a second. Would they have won if Moses hadn't helped, kept his hands up in attitude of prayer? Would they have won... If Joshua had said, hey, guys, just sit down here. We're going to watch Moses. He's praying for us. No, they wouldn't have won either. He learned that valuable lesson that day. Gary, you had something? Are you summarizing the ministry of Paul in Titus' life, or are you summarizing the ministry of Titus in the life of the people? I think more Paul in Titus. Because verse 14 seems to suggest that Titus is to have a impact in the life of these people so they can do actually what Joshua was doing because if you look at the language... Wait, you don't have to go any further. I agree with you there. If you are Paul and you're training Titus to be a leader, what do you expect him to do? Lead? Who's he going to lead? The people you'll put him in charge of? And then when you take him out of there and you bring him over to Nicopolis, you train him some more, he's going to give him another job. He is building leaders. And that's really what we're trying to talk about right now is that leadership building. And there's one other point I wanted to make here about what Moses did as well as Titus did that I want you to see. Oh, but there's one other thing. You know what? Periodically when they were at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, Moses would go up to the top of the mountain, right? He'd talk to God. Do you know sometimes he would take Joshua with him? How would you like to go up there into the presence of God like that. But Moses recognized Joshua needed to know about that and how to do that. Because when he was in the promised land, things were going to happen, especially after the first battle of Ai. What do I do? He knew to immediately go to God. Now, as you studied the life of Titus, I think we saw Paul doing the same thing. He considered him to be the most reliable and his brother of the faith. In 2 Corinthians, when he's having him transport these letters, he used him as a carrier of the scripture. And Titus was the kind of person who brought God's joy wherever he found himself. And Paul was enhancing these various characteristics. Now, there's a third thing that Moses did. He gave Joshua constant encouragement and affirmation. Look in the last verse here in Numbers 27, verse 23. And he said, then he laid hands on him and commissioned him just as the Lord had spoken. Moses was repeatedly affirming Joshua. One way that he did that was, was taking him on excursions that were exclusive to Joshua. They came to share really a unique intimacy that's especially rare in the age differential. You know, Moses was around 120 and Joshua's 40. To be that kind of a relationship. But Moses' encouragement of his protege was in, was in word. It was in demonstration and it was in time spent. He didn't just speak to him or about him. He had a hands-on experience with him and participated in things with him and he spent time with him. Now, you look at those things, does that mean this process of building leaders is one that's quick and easy? No, no it's not. It's something that's difficult, something that's time-consuming, but it's oh so important. Now, I've tried to look at this process that both Moses and Paul use and break it down, try and come up with exactly if we are going to try and reproduce this process in our lives. What should we do? 
What, how, how do we focus it? That's what I want to finish with before we finish today. Uh, now, I want you to think about this. Who has responsibility for building leaders? Well, God does. But who does he give that responsibility to? To a believer. Now, does that job come automatically to parents? Parents are supposed to be about building leaders for the next generation. Does that job, though, also tend to come over and have a partial responsibility for grandparents? Should grandparents participate in helping grandchildren to become leaders? In business, do we have a responsibility, if we're in a leadership position, of building leaders to follow us? You know what the Romans thought? A father was not successful unless his son was better than him. Interesting, isn't it? You know, it's, in our, sometimes we have competition between fathers. No, from the Romans' point of view, if your son's not better than you, then you failed. Now, in business, we're to do that. What about the church? You know, I was thinking about this. What do most Baptist churches do? When their pastor is ready to retire, they go out somewhere else to try and find a replacement. Do they ever build somebody in their church to be the next person? Some do, but it's rare, isn't it? Yes, and God did too. But the fact is, that seems to be rare. And yet this is what is so important. We should be about, should a pastor or a CEO be so busy that they can't build into the next leader's life? Then they are shortchanging whoever they're working for. Shortchanging. So I'm trying to break down this process of building leaders for the next generation. And I think there are basically three things that we need to recognize. Maybe four. The first thing is the leader must be the source to help to enable the future leader to acquire certain things. To acquire there are some things that can only come from inside that future leader. But, you know, for example, every person has muscles. But the right trainer can take you and make those muscles to their paramount position if you allow them to train you properly. So what this leader is going to need to do is help him to acquire, number one, conviction. Because you can't be a good leader without conviction. Now... What is conviction? It's really simple. It's just being convinced of something. To me, the guy with the, beta, the best one to demonstrate in the scripture conviction is a guy by the name of Elijah. He walked into the palace, you know, which you're not supposed to do without an invitation. He walked right into the throne room where Ahab and Jezebel were, and he said basically this, as the Lord lives, whom I serve, they will not be reign here until I say so. They were worshiping Baal. The message was threefold. God's real. I'm his man. And he's given me the power and the resources to meet whatever challenge comes before us. And we're going to turn you back to Yahweh and away from Baal. He was convinced. And that conviction shined through and the people started changing as time went on. So conviction's number one. Number two is courage. Courage. Did God have a little conversation with Joshua about that in the first chapter of the book of Joshua? Yes, he did. He says, be strong and courageous. I'm going to use a leader. I need that leader to be courageous. And number three, discipline. Is any child born with discipline? Well, if you were ever a parent, a grandparent, an, an aunt or an uncle, you know no child is born with discipline. Discipline has to be learned. And the leader can help build discipline into the next leader. And those he brings out from within that coming leader. And we have to aim for that. Now, the next thing, the one passing the mantle, must be all about equipping. Equipping. He uses his experience in knowing that the skills and knowledge that his mentor will need to be successful. He knows what those are. And he has to provide the new leader with the assets that he can't get on his own. You know, I was fortunate 
in my legal career to have a leader who knew what it was necessary to practice law the way God wanted a man to. And he shared things with me and gave me things which I may never have learned if I hadn't learned it from him. And Moses is the same way here and is Paul. So what are these five aspects that I think that the leader has to be able to provide to his mentoree, to his protege? The first one is purpose. If you don't have a purpose, you can't lead. You've got to know what your purpose is. You can't go before somebody, well, we need to figure out what our purpose is. Now you're coming to me as a leader. You need to know what the purpose is. I'm not following somebody who's trying to figure it out. I'm following somebody who knows. So the purpose, did Moses make it clear to Joshua what the purpose was? Yes. Yes. That's our promised land. At first it was going to be, I'm taking us there. You're going to help me. Well, now I'm not taking us there. You're going to have to do it. That's your purpose. So that's number one, purpose. Number two is relationships. A leader's got to know how to build and establish relationships. You can't do everything on your own. You have to be able to delegate from time to time, and you do that by establishing relationships. These men that Paul was training, did he build relationships with them? With Tychicus, with Artemis, with Zenos, with Apollos? Yes, he did. He had relationships. He had them with Timothy. He had them with Titus. All of these guys who he was building into, he had relationships with them and he showed them how to build relationships with others. Number three, he was a constant source of encouragement. You know, just because you think somebody's doing well doesn't mean that they know that you think they're doing well. You need to encourage. Not encourage in a way that they think, well, he's just... The phrases that come to my mind are not ones I want to use. Yeah, they're just giving him fluff. That's not what, what you need. You need to be able to have truthful encouragement. It's not really encouragement. You know, if I was to tell my wife, you know, Julie, you make the best lime icebox pie I've ever tasted. Would that be very encouraging to you, Julie? Yeah. No, it wouldn't. She never makes slime icebox pie. (laughs) Now, if I was to say apple crisp, that would be different. But you see, it's not encouraging when you're not telling the truth. You got to tell the truth. So that's the the, the, the the third thing. The fourth thing is how to navigate the obstacles that were being their way. The experienced leader knows there will always be obstacles. And so he knows that that new leader is going to face the same type of obstacles or obstacles similar to that. How do you navigate them? How do you deal with them? You know, last Sunday night, I had to deal with an obstacle. And uh, what was I going to do? Well, fortunately, I was able to have the experience to deal with that and uh, to love her and at the same time not back down from her or allow her to intimidate me and yet not cause a rabble to want to attack her and she feels threatened. All of those things, you come to learn to navigate those obstacles. And finally, you got to give them tools. Well, what kind of tools? Skills and resources that a more experienced leader can provide. It's little things. Little things. I can remember an associate that was in my office, and he, he came to me and he said, you know, we haven't told the other side who our experts are. And the scheduling order says, we have to do it by tomorrow. We're not going to do it. What do you mean we're not going to do it? Then we can't use those experts as a trial. Yes, we can. Why? Because the other side is so dumb, they haven't sent us requests for disclosures. And so we don't have to tell them. I have gone before four different judges on this issue, and they've all sided with me. If they don't ask, you don't have to tell. And so the concept is little things like that are tools that you gain through experience and that you can use. Yes. You just told the world your strategy. That's true. But uh, most of my uh, opponents, they don't listen to these tapes. (laughs) I would allow them to learn that strategy if they would listen. Mark. You know, all all these items here to pass on the baton or to... um, train the next leader really will lose their power unless the current leader that's training 
has passion and is sold out to what he's doing. He has to be, yes. Now, he's got to have that kind of passion to do any of this. Final thing, though, is this, and I think this is the most important thing. He must instruct the soon-to-be leader as to how to receive his vision from God. For God is always the source of spiritual vision. If you were to talk to our current pastor, he would tell you that God gave him a vision when he was coming to church, what First Baptist should be. I can remember hearing a conversation with a guy by the name of Bill Bright, who I think was just a gift to our nation. He founded uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. He's one of the finest personal evangelists I've ever known. But he had a vision for what God wanted him to do. You know, you might think about this. Do you have a vision for what God wants you to do? Well, if you're going to be in any kind of leadership position, you need to have a vision from God. Not a vision you come up with. Not a vision that a board of directors uh, suggests to you. Not a vision some counselor says you ought to do. But it should come from God. But if you can do these things like Paul did, like Moses did, you can build leaders yourself. And that's one of the reasons these things are in the scriptures, to teach us how to do that. Let's close in a word of prayer. And I appreciate you studying the book of Titus with me. Father, I thank you for giving us this book. I thank you for preserving this book, not let anything happen to it. You know, through the history of these last 2,000 years, Satan would really love to have destroyed a lot of these books so that they wouldn't be in our hands and we wouldn't have them to use. I just thank you, Father, that you preserved these books for us. You gave us this canon of the scriptures and you've allowed us to be able to each have our own copies, each to be able to read them and study them ourselves. Help us to realize that there was a lot of time in history when people didn't have that. But you've put us in a time where we can learn to love your book and to study it. Father, I thank you for a church that allows us to study your word. Now, Father, as we go through this week, help us to look at those who maybe we need to look at as the next generation's leaders, who we need to be building into. Also, help us to be aware of pressing needs of others that you may bring before us. I thank you for the opportunity to do both. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.